Oh God, the terrible tyranny of the majority. We all have our harps to play, and it's up to you to know with which ear you'll listen. That quote comes from Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. Geek stories are getting more and more diverse, both in the characters on the page and screen and in the stories being told. How does that impact audiences? Let's dig deeper into that as we explore punching up our story concepts. Here on the Story Geeks Podcast, we love geek stories. In this special limited series, the Story Geeks Podcast digs deeper into how storytellers craft emotionally relevant stories and how you can learn alongside us to do the same. If you're new to the Story Geeks Network, my name is Jay Shear, and I'm the author of the time travel novel Time Slingers and the upcoming steampunk western fantasy mashup novel Death of a Bounty Hunter. Today I'm joined by Mike Rowe, a screenwriter and journalist, and Will Marlowe, a screenwriter, film school faculty member, and host of the Mecha Dragon podcast. Let's dig deeper into chapter three of Carl Iglesias' book, Writing for Emotional Impact, and discover how storytellers are crafting concepts audiences want to invest in. I have Mike Rowe and Will Marlowe with me. Only people with rhyming names in this episode. That is all <laughs> we're going to do. Also, during this series, um, you will be hearing from Marissa White and Justina as well. And, and you get to hear from uh, Justina starting in episode four. She actually just published a Star Wars novel. So for those fans of ours who like Star Wars, which is pretty much all of you, um, <laughs> you should enjoy talking about having that discussion. All right, so we're going to launch into the second half of Chapter 3. In the first half of Chapter 3, we talked a lot about this idea of a concept and how it might fit into storytelling. Carl actually goes into, the author, Carl Iglesias, goes into a bunch of ways to increase your story's appeal by strengthening its concept. And I love this because, again, this is before you, you don't have to, uh, you can start your concept before you ever start your story, which is what I love about this. And like I said in the last episode, I'm totally on board with this now, and I want to start doing this as much as possible. <laughs> so let's dig deeper into a few of these. I think he has like 12, and we're not going to go into every single one of them. But um, the first approach he recommends I found really fascinating. He talked about finding the unique hook in your story, basically asking yourself, what's different about my story and why should people care about it? So my question to you guys what are some of the most unique geek stories you've come across that instantly made them more appealing because you hadn't seen anything like it previously? As if the writer went about doing what Carl says by finding this unique hook in your story and implementing it into your concept. Yeah, the first one that came to mind for me that I, I think both fits, fits this in a way and doesn't fit it mm. is The Matrix. Oh. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when I saw that, it was uh, so new. It was having these, like, big ideas it's playing with, and it really hits you on a visceral level, and, and it, it, you know, there are parts of it that are really old concepts. Like, it sort of reminds me of, like, the philosophical thing of Plato's Cave and mm. uh, mm. these other ideas of uh, entering a world you don't know. And there's, like, hero's journey stuff to it. But there are so many new ideas, too, in it that it is something – it, it puts a new spin on something old and has amazing new visual style as well that it really, really hadn't seen before. It was, like, a breakthrough in special effects with – bullet time and with uh, just the way everything's presented 
than that that's so specific visually mm-hmm. that it, it sort of blew my mind and I think blew a lot of minds at the time and, and you know, has become well-remembered because of that, whether or not people love the sequels that much. Mm. That's a great, a great, great example. I can just, I can just see them thinking like, there's a bunch of ways that concept could have started out. Like, oh mm-hmm. yeah, it's a bunch of guys in a computer. <laughs> you know, you're like, what? <laughs> um, but the, the, it's uniquely familiar. Um, there's the promise of a mm-hmm. lot of conflict in what we see yeah. from Neo, and mm-hmm. on top of that, they, they, you're right. It's, it's basically transformative. It's taking some old familiar ideas, like you mentioned, the Plato's cave analogy is a great one. Um, the allegory and then, and then, but making it entirely new to us. So that's a really good example. This also reminded me, I also, over the years, I've done a lot of sketch comedy, Mm. uh, around Los Angeles. And one of the instructions that the teachers in our, in our, uh, troops always taught us was be interesting. Like whatever you're doing, just be interesting. That's all people want. Mm. You have to hold people's attention. And you know, when you have a concept like the matrix, it really is, that is someone taking be interesting, like to the nth degree, like every moment that that movie, there's something interesting going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great example. Will, what do you think? Wow. Uh, well, I have some things listed here, but I got to say the matrix is a great example. Although I, I refrain from adding it to my list because uh, I think your question was uh, that instantly made made it more appealing to you. Yeah, yeah. And I had no idea what I was in for when I went into The Matrix. Mm. Um, oh. I really didn't know that much about it except for that it had tons of buzz. And so when certain things happen in that movie, like when he finally wakes up and he's you know steps outside the cave, as it were, yeah. Mike. Uh, I was like, what the, what am I watching? <laughs> what, what is happening here? But it is a great example. Okay, um, so one of the first ones that came to mind for me was Ready Player One. Oh, um, nice. Also, uh, Ex Machina, if you guys have seen mm. that. Uh, Snowpiercer, that was very different from anything that I'd seen before. Yeah. Uh, Inception felt a little bit like that. Uh, Time Bandits, mm-hmm. I'm going to go old school on that one. Yeah, nice. Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind Ooh. Uh, is oh, one. Yeah. And I don't, it's a fairly new one on Netflix, a Netflix movie called I Am Mother. Have you guys seen this or I've heard, heard about, about it? it? A bunch of people have told me about yeah. it, but I have not watched it. Yeah, I mean, the concept for anybody that hasn't heard about it is, is essentially that uh, this girl is raised by a robot. And apparently, you know, she's like the last person left on Earth. And therefore, you know, her mother has to be this robot. But, you know, as you see in the trailer, there she starts to be suspicious that this robot might not actually have her best interests in mind. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's really, um, really, you know, Netflix has some hidden gems in there sometimes. And I think that was one of them. Those are all really compelling. That's a great list. It's funny because none of us actually share a movie on any of our lists, which is uh, <laughs> which is awesome. I have on mine um, a movie we did a podcast recently about a couple of months ago. It's Inside Out, Pixar's Inside Out. Mm. Oh. Um, I don't think I've ever seen a movie about literally the emotions inside us as characters. We know that stories elicit emotion, but to make a story where the emotions are characters is a completely different deal, especially... And they did such an artful job of explaining the way that our brains work with different aspects of uh, our psyches that made mm-hmm. it really tangible. And we talked about on our podcast, we talked about how you could literally use that movie to explain to your kids how emotions work. Um, yeah, which is I listened to amazing. your episode on uh, on that movie. Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was really insightful. It's crazy. Yeah, and I, I think that Pixar also went to uh, great lengths to get it right. You know, s- generally speaking, scientifically too. You know, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And I think that really shows in, in how effective it is as a, as a story as well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I have another, um, just like you had a book and a movie. I have another, I have one just like that. I have, uh, mm-hmm. do androids dream of electric sheep, which was of course oh. of Blade mm-hmm. Runner. Now I don't know that Blade Runner is necessarily the most unique premise, uh, on the face of the earth, but I will say that I think what makes it such an interesting um, premise is if you add the question to it, which I think it's begging you to ask, it, which is what makes us human? Um, that's a really compelling question. We've seen it a, a lot of different times, but never yeah. necessarily applied to robots at that time, um, which Ex Machina... At that time, definitely not. Yeah. yeah, Ex Machina works off that same sort of premise in a very different way. Um, but yeah, that's that was one for me that... that that I picked up on. And then the third one I have on here, well, is a, is a series of movies, but Nolan's Batman trilogy. Um, mm. I don't remember nice. ever seeing before Nolan's Batman trilogy, uh, a superhero movie that said, no, 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 no. What if this was real? <laughs> like, like, yes. Thank uh, you. <laughs> yeah. I, that's, that's what I love so much about it. I mean, I remember watching Batman begins and thinking, Oh my God, Batman exists in the real world. Exactly. Finally. Exactly. Finally. And out of all the superheroes that exist, like, I mean, there's there's some that, you know, exist in a very gritty, you know, real, realistic type of world. But Batman's definitely one of them that I think uh, his whole character really thrives in that kind of setting. Um, Absolutely. And so I was happy to see that, too. That's a great example, Jay. Yeah, those are, those are, those are all, I mean, we just listed a whole bunch of movies that were, many of them, have been either neglected or were cinema changing movies where they they mm-hmm. actually literally uh what would you call it like like birthed genres <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah uh i think to us to a large extent in the book world um cyberpunk was already a thing but it was not in the movie world and the matrix launched mm-hmm. cyberpunk as a, as a movie genre I think there's been I think there's been some more uh, cyberpunk stuff in animation before then. Oh, I that's fair. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that. fair. Yeah, yes. Yeah, well, for yeah, in uh, in anime for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, yeah. Good point. That's a really good point. Um, let's go ahead and move on to our next question here. Uh, the author goes into some suggestions about character and um, selling different aspects of what characters face in the story. So remember, we're trying to make the concept of our story more interesting. Um, so he talks about uh, changing elements of characters. And he there's a specific section of that portion of this book. Again, buy the book because there's way more than we're going to talk about. Uh, he says, change traditional story elements. So that means that he's recommending that storytellers take what we've seen previously and update it by changing key elements in the story to make it new. So the examples he cites include changing the gender or sexual orientation of the main character, changing the genre, changing the time period the story takes place in. He mentioned several others as well, but I'll stop there. This seems to be a very common technique in 2019. So my question to you guys, where have you seen this technique used effectively and have you used it yourself? Yeah, this I had a lot of uh, fun thinking about this question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I I thought of several examples because I think it is more common now. And I think that if you do it well, it can really add a lot of interest to your premise or your hook. Mm. So... Uh, something really recent that came to mind was there's I think that Stranger Things does this sometimes 
Um, so, for example, in the latest season, season three, um, instead of Steve and Robin getting together at the end, she reveals that she's gay. And he's like, oh, and they just become better friends after that. Hmm. <laughs> um, and I, because that is the moment, especially from, because, you know, it's set in the 80s. And so if you're thinking about this as like a, you know, an homage to those movies from that time, this is not something that you would have seen in a movie in the 80s. You would have seen mm. them get together or something like that. Mm. It, it wouldn't have been she's gay and then they're friends. Right. I, I just don't, right. I, can't re, I can't think of anything from the 80s that I saw that was like that. Maybe I'm just missing out, but I didn't see anything like that. Yeah. Um, I also kind of thought of Captain America, the first Avenger, because it's a superhero movie, mm. but it's in World War II. Mm. Um, and he's fighting like super Nazis or, you know, <laughs> uh, stuff like that. Um, Evil Dead 2 was a remake of Evil Dead that basically turned it into a horror uh, or a comedy, mm. a horror comedy. Mm. Right. So that's that's a really obvious example, because there's literally a version of that movie that exists that has no comedy in it. Right. Um, Avengers Infinity War made the villain the protagonist. Um, uh, The Orville, which is kind of like Star Trek with a lot of humor. Right, right. Um, I think it had some tonal inconsistencies in the first season if we're really getting deep into it, but uh, I I really like that show. And I I, I need to mention two episodes of The X-Files that I think did this exceptionally well in in different ways. So um, I was a big X-Files fan back in the day, although uh, to this day I've still not seen the final uh, season. Um, Okay, so there's an episode in season three, season three, episode 20, called Jose Chung's From Outer Space. Have you guys seen this episode? No, I haven't seen much of X-Files at all, actually. Oh, goodness. Okay, so this is uh, probably my favorite episode from the whole season, and it was written by a guy named Darren Morgan, who wrote many of the uh, many of the most popular uh, and and most well received and offbeat episodes of the show? Mm. But in any case, Jose Chung's from outer space, and it's hard to talk about it uh, because of how bonkers it gets. You know, their tagline at the end of like the theme song was always "The truth is out there." It almost like it doesn't invalidate that, but it almost makes it irrelevant in the sense that. It's dealing with this idea that truth isn't necessarily a singular thing, and it deals with sort of different people's perspectives and how truth might even be malleable. It's really interesting. Interesting. And the other episode I want to mention is called Bad Blood, Season 5, Episode 12, and it was actually written by Vince Gilligan, uh, who who ran Breaking Bad. Um, And it started, like, Luke Wilson made an appearance in it. And... um, it, that's also one of the best episodes of X-Files because um, it, again, deals with this idea that um, people experience things in a different way, and so they have different versions of the same story. So in this case, it opens by flipping around who you think is the hero and who you think is the victim or the antagonist. And so it starts with this kid running through a dark forest, and he's like scared out of his mind, right? And you can see that there's something chasing him through the trees, some shadowy figure. And he runs and he runs, and of course he trips and he falls down, and the shadow lunges on top of him and stabs a spike through his chest, killing him. And then you look up, and it's Mulder who has done this. Oh, nice. <laughs> and then, you know, cut to cut to theme song. So 
two episodes that I would definitely recommend you guys check out, but that I believe really change up these traditional story elements in really effective ways. Yeah, which makes them instantly more compelling from the concept standpoint. That's awesome. Those are good examples. Mike, what do you got on your list? Um, you know, one thing that really struck out to me was uh, Zootopia. Mm. I was thinking there's a lot more movies where traditionally it would have just been like male cop. Like you would have had like the big strong hero dude in charge. But now more movies, they're doing a lot of, a lot of gender flips. Uh, I also was thinking about uh, uh, Marvel's doing this a lot. Uh, I think, you know, even just Captain Marvel, you know, traditionally, even in the comics, it was a male character uh, going back. It was the, the alien Marvel. And, uh, you know, you reimagined as a female character. Um, and it, I, I thought it was just fascinating to see the way that the MCU, you know, we have a female Thor coming up. And it's a, a technique that, you know, we haven't seen stories from these perspectives before. So it feels very fresh and new, even though they're just telling old stories again in a, with, with these sort of gender flipped or uh, racially swapped or et cetera characters. And I think it's really powerful and, um, you know, makes people feel seen. It's definitely a technique that uh, I know my wife and I, we write together and it's something that we've used ourselves. And, uh, you know, we try and tell, you know, diverse stories that we've never seen before. And, uh, you know, often it means just sort of putting our own perspectives over what the, the white male version of whatever's come before. Um, and, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's a, a chance for us to explore what we feel and I think it's also the kind of story that we really resonate with, um, you know, a chance to see a story that hasn't been told over and over and over again. Um, you know, I love those stories, too, but it's it's always nice to see it uh, through new eyes. I, when I was thinking about this question, Jay, it occurred to me that there might be situations where you actually need to make changes like this to the to the concept uh, mm -hmm. for whatever reason. So we all know, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know that Disney slash Marvel now owns all the Marvel characters from Fox, right? Like, mm -hmm. such as the X-Men. Now, it is currently the year 2019. When they, at some point, do Magneto and Xavier and the X-Men again, um, at this point, I feel like unless they set these movies decades ago, which would be kind of tough to do in the context of the existing MCU, right, where we've had hide nor hair of any mutants up to this point, um, you kind of have to change at least Magneto because his whole story has to do with being in one of the Nazis' concentration camps and how that affected him and turned him into the character that he is. But, I mean, at that point, how many years ago was that? Um, I don't know that you can have a, a character, that major of a character, that needs to play the type of role that Magneto needs to play without changing him so that he doesn't have to be, like, 105 years old. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it makes me wonder, what are they going to change in this concept of this character to make it... Uh, not only stay true to the spirit of who Magneto is, because I think he's like one of the greatest villains that Marvel has. Mm. How do you how do you stay true to the spirit of that character uh, when you have this limitation? What do you change? You know, wh what what is now the formative experience of his life that turns him into this this person? And that's something yeah. that I've been really curious about. 
I think it's a really good question. I, you know, there have been some rumors going around about how they might address this online. I know that uh, there's been some reports that they might set Magneto uh, more directly into the uh, civil rights movement um, uh, and maybe have that be part of it and have, you know, a, an African-American Magneto, I think, would be really fascinating uh, because, you know, traditionally they, the the concept of Professor X and Magneto would sort of been compared to Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X mm -hmm. and making that more oh, explicit, yeah. I think, could be a really interesting way of going uh, forward with the concept without... Uh, neglecting who the character is or, or you know, sort of, um, you know, going in a direction that feels untrue to who the character is. At the same time, you know, Magneto was so tied into that World War II origin yeah. that, um, you know, I, I feel like anything you do is is a, a dangerous area for the fans, but, you know, maybe I'm just saying that as a fanboy. So I would be very excited to see a new concept. I think that um, it's really that sort of uh, radical idea who maybe they're actually right, I think is sort of the, the thing you need with Magneto and, and has a, a, a philosophy that isn't completely abhorrent mm -hmm. uh, or else, you know, it's not an interesting villain anymore and it's not, you, keep, you lose that relationship with your hero. But, um, you know, I think there's a lot of directions they can go with it, although at the same time, maybe that's one to put on the shelf for a while and come back to after you've explored some other Marvel villains like Mr. Sinister has never done that much mm -hmm. in film before, so they don't necessarily have to go back to Magneto right away. Yeah, it's a, it's a good it's a good question. I'm going to answer both my original question and your question in the same breath. <laughs> Great, nice. Um, yeah, because two, two handed. Yeah, because yeah. the 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 idea is not only how do you take something brand new um, and up the concepts. Not, I don't want to say value because the concept could be of, of high value, but the concept's interest to a particular market. Um, and simultaneously, what you're asking, Will, is how do you take existing properties, now that we're seeing so much franchise work out there, how do you make those concepts relevant to an entirely new generation of people who may not be mm -hmm. as familiar with all the old things that you may have come across? I have on my list, at the top of my list, Miles Morales as Spider-Man mm, in Spider-Verse, uh, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. yeah. What in what a totally inspired <laughs> take on that character. Uh, Actually, yeah. all those Spider-Man characters, every single one of them in that movie, I think. Oh, absolutely. Every single yeah, that, that's a great point. Um, uh, Doc Ock is fantastic. Yep. Um, and so. Oh yeah, the Doc Ock. Yeah, she's great. She's amazing. So I think that um that what we've seen with Spider-Man, who's one of my favorites, and I. So as, as, as a kid, I would have told you that Batman and Spider-Man were my favorite comic book characters. And I have we've seen the Spider-Man origin story over and over and over <laughs> and over. And yet I watch Spider-Verse and I go, that's entirely new. It yep. is it has all the heart of the character. This is where I think a lot of recasting or, or legacy mm. characters go wrong is that they lose the mm. heart of the character. Um, and they did not lose the heart of Spider-Man mm -mm. in Miles Morales. Like it is an amazing um, transformation. In fact, you can even draw some correlations between um, Uncle Ben and his uncle uh, that ends up being a villain in, in, in Spider-Verse, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, um, there's all those parallels. Yeah, you know, between all the Spider people. I yeah, guess. exactly. You know. And how original is Penny Parker from like yep. the year three thousand? Yeah. Oh, whatever. Awesome. That's so fun. Yeah. It, I mean, what a great, what a great um, 
Yeah, what a great twist on that concept. I remember after that movie came out, so many of my friends were just like, yeah, this is my Spider-Man. You know, I think <laughs> that there's a whole generation who is perfectly fine with that being their Spider-Man. They don't need Peter mm-hmm. Parker. Miles Morales is it, and and that's great. I think it's also a really good example of – we haven't talked a lot about this on the show, um, but a lot of what happens when you talk about legacy characters turning into mm-hmm. – a character that uh, looks and feels different from the previous one, right? Whether it's a ethnicity change, whether it's a gender change, whatever, um, sexual orientation, all these things. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I think what can happen is that there's an element to storytelling where if we go straight to ideology without building the ideology from story, what I, mm-hmm. what I mean by that is the brain is looking for answers as to the question of why. Why is this in here? Um, and if you go straight to ideology, I think you can get these, you know, you see this big, like, what what is it called? Comics gate or whatever, where it's like, oh, you <laughs> yeah. know, SJWs Ugh. are ruining comics and blah, 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 blah. Um, and I don't know anything about the specific comics that are called into question there. But I what I can mm-hmm. tell you is you can do just about anything with story and break people's ideologies by doing mm. story mm-hmm. well and showcasing yes. exactly how a character is different, why the character is different, how it matters to that character's development. Um, and the one thing I think that is just so amazing about Spider-Verse is it changes all of these things about the character. It changes even the setting the character is in. Um it changes all, all a bunch of it brings it brings subcultures and different ethnicities into this world and yet it is universally accepted and loved and that is i think really good storytelling it's because they went to the mm-hmm. to the point of saying we're not just going to we're not just going to shove a character of a different ethnicity into this space we are going to build an entire world around why this character exists in this space, and it's going to mm-hmm. make sense to every single person who watches it. Um, and I think that that's a really important thing to do from a storytelling yeah. perspective: is you have to build in the whys. Um, and I don't agreed. You know, yeah. uh, when they built that character, you know, they didn't neglect what made people love Spider-Man to begin with. Mm-hmm. You know, he's still this poor kid in this neighborhood. It's 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 what Peter Parker would be if he was created today. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's 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 uh, you're still feeling those same feelings and resonating with him for the same reason. It's just you know, there's some trappings changed and there's some you know, it's a fresh look, but it's uh, it's keeping the heart of what made that story work to begin exactly. with. Exactly. You're keeping the heart of it. You're keeping the the core concept, but you're changing all of the little elements, and you don't neglect mm-hmm. the why those things change and yeah. why it's important mm-hmm. that they change. So I just think that that one's great. Um, I really wish uh, Melissa was still on the phone or uh, still on the call <laughs> with us because or the podcast with us because Jordan Peele's Get Out is the next one I have on here, um, mm-hmm. and she talked about Get Out a lot. Yeah. It is my favorite horror movie of all time, um, and you're basically taking a horror trope. Uh, a character who's forced into a terrifying situation and you're showcasing it in an entirely new way. So in my opinion, that that film is pure genius in so many ways from a storytelling perspective. Uh, and I think it, it, I think one of the things about that film is that it's approachable by so many different people. Uh, you yeah. can get, um, if, if you're more, if you are, uh, if you've been a person who has felt the same feelings as your lead character, then you can actually understand the film from all of the little tiny microaggressions in it. 
But <laughs> if you mm-hmm. are not from that character's background, you know, if you're not uh, an African American male or female or whatever person of color, then you can get all of the other references because he goes so deep with all the different diverse perspectives that can be applied to that film that it is uh, almost instrumental in an understanding of race in modern America. Um, and he does it from with around a compelling story. <laughs> like he's not hitting you over the head with anything. Yeah. He's just he's letting you experience it. Um, yeah, it's not preachy. It's not at all. You a great yeah. story, mm-hmm. and it happens to be about these things that haven't been talked about before because of systemic oppression over the years. Um, but you know, it's a powerful movie that you know they talk a lot about how you can have universality through specificity. And that's what that movie does so well is it's so specific, but that makes everybody be able to find something to connect with because it's such a a, a vividly imagined world and story. Um, And, you know, there's there's universal elements uh, within it, like just meeting your uh, uh, girlfriend's parents. You know, there's all sorts of little bits to it that can uh, connect with something in anybody. Oh, absolutely. One of the things I think that Jordan Peele does that is really amazing is that he doesn't let any of his characters come across as if they are the ultimate version of good in the world. Um, Mm. What I mean by that is he takes his lead character, and I apologize, I can't remember the lead character's name and get out, but he makes him a smoker. Now, now yeah. I, I, I'm not. That's, this is not a judgment call based from Jay Shear on smokers, right? But society, <laughs> if you were to villainize anybody in society in today's environment, it's basically Nazis mm-hmm. and smokers, right? Like, like those are two <laughs> groups where people are like, they, they'll say like, oh yeah, smoking is horrible, um, mm-hmm. and yet he makes his lead character a smoker. Now, you don't do that if you're just trying to beat someone over the head with a message that says like, look at this poor guy. You actually are rounding out a character who actually has flaws too. Now, obviously his flaws are nowhere near as bad as the flaws of the people around him. <laughs> obviously that would not be, wouldn't make him a hero in that case. Yeah. But that is an instrumental part of storytelling that I think just ramps everything about that story up. So I, I can't, I can't stop praising that movie. That movie is amazing. Yeah. I mean, a, a flawed main character is what makes a main character interesting. You know, I think it's yeah. what's, the, the idea of Superman bored people for a long time because they saw him as perfect. You know, exactly. I think there's I think there's more to him. I think that there are, there are more depths that people usually miss. But the the popular conception was this platonic ideal, and and I think that's what made people connect with like the MCU and the Marvel characters was they are all flawed in some way. Like you know Tony Stark's ego. Uh, you know, there's so many different ways that these characters are are broken in some way and and that's what makes stories rewarding is that we are we are watching them uh overcome that brokenness to do great things absolutely that's one of the reasons why guardians of the galaxy is maybe my favorite mcu movie because that defines every single main character in Mm -hmm. that and maybe that's part of the reason why i get so emotional in that climactic moment where they defeat ronan you know, because they're finally in that moment where they're coming together, like as a family, basically, mm-hmm. to overcome their, uh, you know, all their flaws and do something good. Mm. Awesome. Uh, the author gives us 12 ways. So yeah, I was right about 12 ways. 12 ways to supercharge your concept. So we're still trying to explore what it is about these concepts that we love and how do we change them. So the question for you guys, have you ever felt the need to work on your concept in this way, to try and supercharge it? And does that tend to happen before you start writing or after you started? We covered this a little bit already, but I just wanna get get a feel for this. And how do you go about the process of supercharging your concept? What are some examples of things that you have actually personally done 
to drive your concept and story forward? This is a great question. I mean, Iglesias has really good advice in the book. Um, conflict needs to be inherent. Baking in an interesting dilemma makes things more compelling. I try, and we touched on this too, I try to give my characters a moral dilemma, even if they don't realize what the implications are right away. Um, and I make sure, and this is, this is <laughs> I, I make sure my main characters are an active participant in the concept. Mm. Right, so I have read so many scripts, I can't tell you how many, where the story basically consists of a bunch of things happening to the main character uh. rather than he or him or her taking action to try and achieve goals, whether they mm -hmm. succeed or not, right? Uh, so if your concept is a bunch of crazy stuff happens to this character, you need to watch out for that concept and you need to do some work on it. It should be more like something like, you know, the character has to do X to get through a bunch of crazy stuff. Mm. Um, and so there's, those are just some of the, those are just some of the little things that I do to try and punch up a concept. And I think you asked uh, to give an example. Yeah, if you, if you have one. Sure. So I have so in the in the the book I'm writing right now, the story I'm writing right now, I have three main point of view characters. This is like an epic fantasy, so it's just part of the genre. Yeah. <laughs> um, and oh my God, it does a lot more work, but um, really fun. So I had some trouble developing this character at first, and I knew that she needed to be sort of obsessed with revenge uh, because this is the same world I said where like the demons are invading. Oh yeah. And, uh, and it kind of started with uh, her hometown, and she loses her family, and she she loses the place where she lived and you know she's uh, there's an element of betrayal to it you know that that's a lot more detailed but so she's on this quest of revenge and but that was like all i had for a little while you know um so how i resolved that particular concept at least up to the current point is i compared her arc her journey through the story with my other pov characters mm. okay so the one is the guy who, who died and he was brought back and enslaved by the demons that I mentioned, I think, in the previous episode uh, with Melissa. Uh, and so whereas he is concerned with redemption, and he's already done some bad stuff, and one of the emotions that he's feeling is he's re very regretful, um, and there's other stuff going on. But so I thought, well, how, how, can I, how, can I, how can I focus her concept to really play with the same themes and kind of enhance that theme throughout the whole book. And so I said, okay, well, maybe she has a different attitude towards redemption. And so then it evolved into, well, she's not concerned with redemption at all. Uh, she's just concerned with getting her revenge, no matter what it costs her personally, because in her mind, she's already lost everything of value to her personally. Mm. Uh, and so even though this is a, a fantasy setting where you know, you die and you go to whatever afterlife, uh, you know, you earned, which is a kind of a familiar concept to us uh, in, in the real in real world, right? Um, she's not concerned with that, A, because she's really obsessed um, with this revenge, but I thought, well, is that really enough um, to, to make this character concept work? And so I thought, I thought, oh my God, you know, she already had this like magic sword. And I thought, well, what if this magic sword is able to kill this major demon that she has a beef with, but it can only d 
do so by um, consuming her soul and using it as uh, fuel, basically, to accomplish this great task. Mm. And so, therefore, she's not concerned with redemption, both because of this obsession with revenge, but also because uh, she's not going to have to face the consequences, or she thinks that she's not going to have to face any consequences because she'll just be, you know, in oblivion after she uh, does this thing. Mm. And so, um, you know, I'm I'm about halfway through the story, so there's still some room there for me to 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 work on it. But that is a the most specific example <laughs> that I could give right now of um, how I was able to uh, supercharge a concept. And, and hopefully it's more super than it was before. Yeah, I dig that. That's great. Mike, how about you? Have you ever supercharged a concept of a story you've been working on? I have. You know, I think that it's something that uh, my writing partner and I, we try to do uh, at the beginning while we're in the planning stage and we're, we're asking people about our ideas and figuring out how we're going to plan the story out. And we try to supercharged as much as possible there but you know like uh like well mentioned it really is an iterative process you know you are writing and rewriting and you know they say writing is rewriting um because so much of the story comes out through uh going back to it and sort of challenging your concepts um one of my first screenwriting teachers always talked about how uh, the big thing is, like, see if you can move up your action. Like, can you, uh, especially in TV writing, like, you know, you have these act breaks with sort of where the commercials go, but can you move uh, something that happens at the end of, like, Act 4? Can it go at the end of Act 3? Could that go at the end of Act 2? Mm. Like, and then you come up with other cool, interesting stuff to happen after that. And it really does supercharge things because you are are getting to the story faster and you are mm. – um, I also had the one screenwriting teacher who worked on the TV show Jane the Virgin, mm. which is, you know, sort of has this telenovela structure to it and is very, there's just like crazy twists all the time. And, and having her as a teacher ended up making us think a lot more about, uh, you know, how can we constantly be surprising people? And I think that it really does come back to looking at ways you can supercharge that concept um, from the planning process and, and all the way through. I think it's super important. Like one, one of our scripts, um, one of our most recent scripts, Holy Fire. Uh, we have a main character who she's going to college on this Christian scholarship, even though she doesn't believe in God. Mm. And mm. Uh, we are exploring that character and like, why is she doing this? And she has these sort of uh, dark secrets to her. But you know, at first we sort of had her, her coming from a perspective of having this dead sister who was a believer, and that's what's driving her to do this. And then as we looked at her script closer, we were like, well, what if she's the one responsible for the sister's death? Uh, you know, how can we make this more personal, mm. make it more uh, painful for her to be going through this experience? And, um, you know, we we just kept looking at how to how to keep amping that up. And, and it, it really does help people to end up connecting with that character. Yeah, that's awesome. That was, yeah, that's a, that was a lot of really good examples from both of you guys. Yeah. Um, it this I, I have done this consistently with my work and it generally tends to happen after I've started. I'm sort of one of these people that's like, I'm inspired to write this thing. And before I even have a clear, compelling idea of what it is, I have started mm -hmm. it. <laughs> um, and that's just part of the process. Like we talked about in the last yeah. episode, um, you had two two different words for it, like a planner or a uh, pantser. pantser. Yeah, that's right. By the seat of your pants. That's right. By the seat of your pants. So I, mm -hmm. I, I tend to... Be uh, this is my how my process tends to go. I tend to to have inspiration, start writing, and then stop and plan. <laughs> mm -hmm. That tend tends to be how I how I do it. And I, and I use uh, Sid Field's paradigm 
for just about yeah. every story I write, oh. whether it's hmm. uh, prose, whether it's a screenplay. It doesn't really matter. I like from that From his book tool. screenplay? Yeah, yeah, from his book mm-hmm. screenplay. Yeah, it's a really, really good tool, I think, to keep you, again, on track, right? You don't want to go 30 pages without doing anything interesting in terms of a plot <laughs> twist mm-hmm. or, a, or a plot point. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, so I, it took us six years to publish Time Slingers because we were constantly learning. Another thing is... Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Myers-Briggs personality test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the aspects of the Myers-Briggs personality test is whether or not you are judging or whether or not you are in- intuiting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And I am not an intuiter. I am a judger. So a lot of times I will literally start to write things and have to get feedback on them because I, I, tr- I don't trust my intuition to say mm. this is really compelling or this is not really compelling. I have to kind of feel it out. I have to kind of run it by people. You and, want like objective evidence. You want like a third party telling you what's going correct. on. Yes, I, correct. Yeah, That's my highest exactly in the Myers-Briggs right. is, my, mm. is my J. My judgment is my, my top thing. So I feel that very much. Oh, that's see? interesting. Yeah, that's... I, I have a feeling I'm I'm more on the mm-hmm. intu- intuitive side on that one. I'll give you guys a really a really tangible example of when this has occurred to me, and maybe you'll find similarities or or differences in it. But we're, I'm working on uh, Death of a Bounty Hunter, which is our full cast audio book that's coming out, and we it's going to be a novel and everything else. So it's just the normal process. But working on that, well, that started as a short film, probably mm-hmm. seven years ago, seven or eight years ago now. <laughs> Started as a short film, and based on the world building, we had a spiritual aspect to it, and we were using a cross as Indiana Jones might use the Ark of the Covenant, but we were using a cross. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, it was set in a Western environment that was sort of a weird paranormal Western. And it was a short film. Uh, it, it did really well in the contest that I entered it in. And after that, I thought, you know what? I'm never going to be able to make this short film. It's going to cost me way too much money. (laughs) So I took that and I turned it into a novelette. And Mm -hmm. we published the novelette, um, different name associated with it. And I started to get feedback Mm -hmm. on it again, like I try to do. And and this is from people who actually purchased it. And they gave me feedback. And and they they were like, hey, I really like this a lot. And you sold it as sort of like a weird Western. But the thing is, it could be 10 times this weird. And I would still (laughs) be down for this. (laughs) Um, And I was like, oh, no way. And and, and in that process, I thought that's actually 100% true. It could be a lot Mm. weirder. And then we took the concept and we said, we're going to just really make this weird. And I really wanted to also not make the spiritual aspect of it so blatant and so what could be perceived as ideological. It really wasn't for us. That wasn't our intention, but it could be perceived Mm -hmm. that way because we were dealing with an actual cross and people would go like, are you saying Christianity? Mm -hmm. And does that mean, you know, so we actually took this, this concept and turned it into, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to just go with me for a second here because it's going to (laughs) take a while for me to articulate. (laughs) So imagine in 1880, well, no, imagine in, in our far future, Mm -hmm. about 200 years in our future on planet earth, we send off a ship to colonize another planet. That ship runs out of fuel, has to land on a planet that is Earth-like and supports life. Um, But they're stranded there. And they say, let's uh, use the technology we have to create Mm. a wormhole and try and get back to Earth because we're stranded here. And they use that technology. But when they use that technology, it doesn't work the way that they intended Mm. it to. And it actually takes people from 1881, (laughs) in our experience, and pulls those people into the new Mm. planet. (laughs) <laughs> and so you have now our story takes place about 200 years past 1881 
on a foreign planet. And so we actually had to come up with, well, religious structures would not even be the yeah. same because people would, would mm. have started to divert from the standard practice that they had probably learned because as, they, as they're developing their, mm. their practices, um, it would change. That's fascinating. Um, and mm. yeah, so we actually enter this world of Death of a Bounty Hunter from a completely different place than it started with before. So that's kind of an example of how we've supercharged our concept, as me specifically, because my writing partner, uh, my co-author of these things is very much more chill about it and uh, <laughs> probably more of a planner than mm -hmm. I am. But I, I constantly go back to the well to go. It's not quite there yet. In fact, the latest iteration we'd made was that we developed some additional characters that were secondary to our main character made very intentionally not to distract from the main story because that was something we, we were really worried about, but that upped some comedic value, but and that allowed for um, another character to have better interactions and unearth more of what she was going through. Because just mm -hmm. like you, Will, we have three lead characters, or three narrators that we were working with. Ah, uh, okay. You know the struggle is real. The struggle is <laughs> super real. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So yeah, I think um, upping this concept, upping the value of your concept and being able to articulate it better and supercharge it over time is really, really, really valuable as all three of us have, have stated. So anyways, I will highly recommend, uh, again, Writing for Emotional Impact, this book to you. It is by uh, Carl Iglesias. If you have not purchased it yet, hopefully as you listen to us talk about it, you will purchase it. Um, and that way you will understand a little bit more depth about what we are talking about. Guys, fantastic conversation. Really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me. Can you guys both give uh, just you know what you're up to and where people can uh, follow you? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Rowe. That's R-O-E, Mike Rowe on Twitter. Uh, also, you can check me out at LAS.com, covering arts and entertainment in L.A. Uh, one story I would recommend going back and checking out is I did an oral history of the Werewolf Bar Mitzvah song from 30 Rock. Uh, <laughs> that and, is amazing. Uh, I, I talked with the writers of that bit, and uh, I even won an award for the story, so you know it's good. So go check that out, oral history of Werewolf Bar Mitzvah on LAist. You can uh, follow me on Twitter at SoCalAuthor, that is S-O-C-A-L author, A-U-T-H-O-R. Yeah, that's how you spell author. You can also find me on William-Marlow.com and uh, also at MechaDragon.net, that is M-E-C-H-A-D-R-A-G-O-N.net, which is the homepage for my podcast uh, that I produce and co-host called MechaDragon. Awesome. Well, thanks again, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure, and we'll keep, we'll keep moving forward with more content. That's it for today's show. Special thanks again to Mike Rowe and Will Marlowe for joining me. Here are the big takeaways from today's show. Number one, crafting a more compelling concept must be something storytellers think about in the modern storytelling economy. Two, Carl Iglesias has 12 suggestions for punching up a story's concept and each one should be considered by writers in all of the various genres out there. Three, punching up concepts means making them more uniquely familiar and promising more conflict throughout the story. Four, the same stories with the same perspectives get tiring. The brain wants new stories from different perspectives. And finally, five, if you change the demographic makeup of your main character, You'd better change all the whys relative to that character's wants and needs. Otherwise, it'll fall flat and be incredibly fake. 
Next week on Writing for Emotional Impact, we'll be talking about universal meaning and the importance of engaging both the logical and emotional parts of an audience member's brain so that they feel and think differently based on the story they've invested in. Don't miss that show or any of our upcoming shows, including all the shows in our Star Wars series. Subscribe today on your preferred podcast provider. And writers in the audience will love this. I have an almost daily podcast series about why audiences love and hate the very same story. I break down why people love The Force Awakens and also why some people hate it. Turns out there are good arguments for both perspectives relative to storytelling and the way the story was told. To get access to that, just become a member of the Story Geeks Club. We'd love you... We'd love to get to know you as a member as well. For more information, visit thestorygeeks.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, question everything in your favorite geek stories, and always seek the truth. Special thanks to all the members of the Story Geeks Club. Remember, all the Story Geeks Club members get access to my almost daily journals, which are short podcasts with my thoughts on stories and things related to storytelling. But if you upgrade to the $3 a month tier, that gives you the ability to vote on upcoming show topics and get special access to our shows as we're recording them live. If you join our club at our $5 a month tier, the tier we call our Guardians of the Solar System, we thank you by name at the end of our podcasts. You'll also receive our discussion questions and prompts before each show comes out. Our $5 a month tier members are Adam Vargas, Bob Sherfield, Justin Weaver, Mary Baldwin, Ray DeLeon, and Wade Johnson. At our $8 a month tier, members also get to choose an aftercast topic for every series. We call these members Cosmic Heroes, and they are Jim Baldwin, Monty Thigpen, and Nick Prokop. And finally, for anyone supporting us at $19 a month or more, you get to be a guest on one of our aftercasts every month. Our one mastermind of multiverse madness is Connie Mo. We appreciate all the members of the Story Geeks Club, even those we haven't mentioned by name. If you would like to support the show by joining the Story Geeks Club, please head over to thestorygeeks.com.